Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. It has been a, a crazy week, and I apologize uh, over the uh, over the problems that we had last week releasing our episode. If some of you went to look for the podcast, you may have noticed that there was an issue in the podcast feed, and uh, I apologize that we didn't get that resolved until yesterday. A couple of uh, couple of other commitments that I had going on. So this week uh, is a lot of exciting stuff has happened. Uh, the first of which is. OpenSSH, a new version of OpenSSH has been released. And what's particularly great about this version is they are finally starting to focus on hardware authentication keys. Now, if you've listened to the show for any length of time, then you undoubtedly are familiar with how uh, our discussion on the YubiKey and how you can use the YubiKey to authenticate into SSH. Well, there are more players on the market, as many of you have brought up from time to time. And a new player who actually got into the market to do Bitcoin, uh, a hardware Bitcoin wallet, has now decided to enter into the market of SSH and doing other hardware crypto. And of course, that is Trezor. And so the new version of SSH, just trying to get my notes pulled up here, I apologize, uh, the new version of SSH allows uh, has the everything that you need for hardware hardware SSH tokens built in, and the Trezor supports this, and so they talk. And all that is required is that you install a, uh, a the latest version of OpenSSH, which is eight point two, and have uh, libfido two version one dot three dot uh, installed. If you have those things, then this is going to then this is going to work with you, uh, work for you, and you'll be able to authenticate using this hardware SSH token. The advantage here is that there are more players in the game, and this is a fairly simple, straightforward thing to set up. Essentially, all you have to do uh, is run the SSH key gen with TACT uh, and using ECDSA dash SK, and what that is going to allow you to do is generate an SSH key. The Trezor is unique because it is the only device made that has a built-in screen, and so what that means from a practical perspective is you actually have the ability to see what SSH is requesting. And so if it you know if it pops up and says, "Hey, this is the machine that you're authenticating against right now." Even on the YubiKey, for example, which I very much support, I might add, the way to the the way that you go about doing that is you're you're interacting only with the terminal. This does all of the crypto inside of the hardware token, much like YubiKey does, but it also has a display to tell you what it's doing. Additionally, and one thing that I really liked about this, and actually the thing that made me pull the trigger and decide to order it, 
is the fact that the Trezor allows you to generate the key on the device itself. Now, the YubiKey is close in that the YubiKey will never give the private key up after it has been added. But where these two devices differ is in the Trezor, you generate the key on the device. And the advantage there is nobody can ever, nobody can ever take that key, but even if they find the original computer that you used to generate it on. And I've actually seen some problems with this because I've seen some users uh, who generate the key on their on their YubiKey, just as you would imagine that they would, but instead of uh, instead of then removing that file and deleting it and being done with it, instead what they do is they give they they store that, or even worse, they will write it to another YubiKey uh, to another YubiKey, which kind of defeats the purpose of having a one thing you have and one thing you know, and um, and so I like the fact that I think Trezor is doing this a little bit better. The other thing I'm excited about, it means that the OpenSSH team is really taking first-class support for hardware tokens very seriously, specifically the LibFIDO2 standard. Now, you need the Tracer Model T, which is the only FIDO2 hardware, as I said, that has a display, so it allows you to see which identity is being used for authentication. And for the server, all you need is to have uh, OpenSSH 8.2 or above installed, and then you just simply drop your your public key in there. Now, important note, OpenSSH needs to be compiled with the security key built-in option enabled. Um, that's on the client side, I might add. And uh, and so then, essentially, once this is all set up, you plug your Trezor in, you try and SSH into the computer you want to SSH into, and the contents of the pub file are added to the authorized key file, and it just... it it, it pops up on the screen, says, hey, do you want to authenticate? You click on the button, and now you're able to authenticate into the server. So I have a Trezor Model T on order. I'll report back um, when it arrives here, and I'll tell you what I think of it. But I have to tell you, I'm excited. I'm excited that there is more than one player in the game. I'm excited that hard, we're, we're going towards hardware standards for authentication. And it extends beyond OpenSSH. It really does, because... People are tired of trying to remember passwords, and on top of that, passwords that you can actually remember and use day-to-day are becoming so complex and difficult that it is becoming impossible to use without a password manager if you were to do it securely. And of course, the problem with the password manager is then you have to secure that somehow. And if anybody ever gets access to the password manager, as I've mentioned many times on this program, not only do they have access to your passwords, they have a directory listing. They know exactly where to go to use those passwords. So kudos to the OpenSSH team, too. kudos to Trezor, too, who, you know, like I say, got into the market primarily to do Bitcoin Wallet um, and said, hey, this is a really cool device that has far greater implications. And so let's see how far we can push them. And they did. And uh, and I think that's pretty cool. Again, open phones this hour. It's 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. That's how you can make your voice heard, become a part of the program. We'd love to have you this hour. You can also join us in our interactive mumble room, or in our interactive chat room by going to freenode.net, pound, ask Noah show. Over the course of the past, I don't know, maybe four or five months, we have gotten a few different calls on the program, and we have taken uh, and responded to a number of different emails from you talking about more secure DNS. Now, DNS security is of paramount importance to anybody that cares about privacy because while your traffic itself may be encrypted and while a uh, 
while your ISP may not be able to see what you're doing when you get to Google.com, when you enter a request for Google.com, that DNS inquiry is not encrypted. And so the ISP can see it and anybody in between can see it. And of course, the DNS resolver can see it. Um, and so this presents a, a bit of a privacy concern. And so, as you can imagine, maybe when it's Google.com, nobody really cares. Or maybe when it's DuckDuckGo.com, nobody really cares. But when you start to find your way on the Internet into some sites that people might deem suspicious or, or, or it's just something you might be uncomfortable visiting, maybe you don't want your ISP to know that. And frankly, it's none of their business. Well, there's a couple different routes that people have been taking and a couple different ways that people have tried to implement a more secure DNS solution, uh, more secure DNS uh, alternative, and Mozilla is now taking a stand with DOH. Now, if you haven't heard of DOH, DOH is DNS over HTTPS, and so essentially, what they're doing is taking an existing encryption uh, system used for encrypting traffic, that is the HTTPS protocol, and funneling the DNS request over that. Now, a couple of points right up front, DOH lacks any native support in the operating system. And so by default, if you just open your computer up, there's no way you're going to be able to tell it to funnel your DNS traffic over uh, HTTPS. You're going to have to use some sort of third-party system. Mozilla is making that very easy because they're incorporating it into the Mozilla browser. So the DOH will encrypt DNS traffic from the client, that is the browser, to the resolver's over HTTPS, so the user's browsing uh, cannot be tampered with or intercepted by somebody spying on the network. Now, you might say to yourself, but no, I don't have anybody spying on my network. It's my network. At home, that may be true. Is that true when you go to the coffee shop? Is that true when you're sitting at your office? Your network may, may be secure. Is your ISP, uh, you know, stopping themselves from spying on your DNS requests? I, I'm going to guess no. Quote, the resolvers we've chosen to work with so far are Cloudflare and NextDNS. They have agreed to be part of our trusted recursive revolver pro resolver excuse me, program. The program places a strong policy requirement on the resolver and how they handle data. This includes placing strict limits on data retention so providers, including Internet service providers, can no longer tap an unprotected stream of users' browsing history to build a profile that can then be sold or otherwise used in ways that people have not meaningfully consented to. We hope to bring more partners into the TRR program. So this is really neat, and Mozilla does a fantastic job. We have this link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com if you want to learn more about uh, DOH and how this helps prevent privacy, Mozilla does a pretty good job breaking it down. So how does DOH keep my data from being collected and sold? Mozilla, re uh, Mozilla requires all DNS providers that can be selected in Firefox to comply with our resolver policy through legally binding contract. These requirements place strict limits on the type of data that may be retained. What provider can do what the provider can do with that data, how long they may retain it, the strict policy is intended to protect users from providers being able to collect and monetize their data. They might ask, what are the privacy... Uh, we kind of already went over that. Why does Mozilla believe that switching to DOS on by default is respects the user's choice? Now, this is a big one for me because to a certain degree, you are in uncharted territories. Yes, this is an RFC, and yes, it is a public standard, but this is not something that we have just accepted as this is the way we do DNS now. And so when you start doing... When Mozilla Firefox is going to resolve DNS requests a little bit differently by default than, for example, maybe Chrome would 
or uh, you know, or or Internet Explorer Edge. You, the the possibility opens up at least my troubleshooting mind says now there's another variable now this is something that us as system administrators have to be aware of anytime we go into a client and so you know there's there's a certain amount of hesitation that i approach with this but again mozilla does a great job breaking this down few users understand the role of dns in the use of their internet and the potential for widespread abuse of their dns information if users don't understand then they can't make meaningful choices rather than putting Rather than putting the onus on the users, Mozilla is taking steps to ensure that personal privacy is the default for all users and to give users the ability to select non-default options if they so choose. So why encrypt DNS queries? Aren't there other mechanisms besides DNS that IPs or that ISPs can use to collect data about user behavior? Again, another very valid question because, it, and we talked about this a, a few weeks ago, there are a number of different ways that you know to include just putting a one pixel image that companies are able to use to track users data so does this really even solve anything well quote there are many threats to users privacy and a single technology cannot address all of them the fact that there are so many privacy risks exist today is a reason to tackle each problem not a reason to refuse to solve any of them this is why mozilla and others are working to define appropriate methods to define leakage of personal identifiable information and other protocols other than dns one example is a proposal for encrypted server name indication or esni for tls certificates um and so the, you know they go on and i don't think the rest of them are are those are kind of the the bullet points. I don't know that the rest of them are, are particularly interesting unless you're uh, unless you're particularly interested in DOH. But the tide is turning and the time is coming now where we are reaching a point where DNS is no longer going to be something that threatens our privacy. Or at least we're taking one giant step to mitigate that. And so to those of you that have called in, which we thank you for in the past, and those of you who have asked questions about what can I do to prevent my information being leaked over DNS, the answer is use Firefox, which is interesting because Firefox ha and Mozilla as a whole has just taken a really great stance uh, in general towards user privacy and moving towards an environment in which you can, the, the, the browser is working around you rather than you funding the browser and the company behind the browser, which is certainly the case as it exists with Google Chrome and probably the case as it exists with the new Microsoft Edge based on Google Chrome. If you want more information, again, we have the DOH, uh, Mozilla's DNS over HTTP DOH article linked in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Click on episode 168, uh, and there you'll find it uh, available for you. You can read through all of the technical details. Again, Mozilla doing a great job breaking this down for the average person. Again, open phones this hour. It is 855-450-NOAA. That is the phone number to join us, 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Earlier this month, Red Hat announced the end of life for CoreOS Container Linux. Now, you might remember CoreOS was a server operating system specifically designed to run Linux containers. Uh, and the the EOL will be May 26th of this year. Now, this is something that had been expected soon after CoreOS uh, was acquired by Red Hat, and everybody had a pretty good idea that it was coming, but now we have the actual dates. Now, a more important date, if you're a system administrator out there, ears perk up, especially if you use containers. Uh, as of September 1st, 
all of the published resources related to CoreOS Container Linux will be deleted or made read-only. And OS downloads will be removed, core update servers will be shut down, and the OS images will be removed from AWS Azure and the Google Compute Engine. So if you're on Core OS, you might be thinking to yourself, I am going to be up a creek without a paddle come September 1st. What do I do? And the answer to that is Flatcar, Flatcar Container Linux. Flatcar Container Linux is a fork of the original, for, uh, of the original Core OS, and uh, they have been going full steam ahead. In fact, when the acquisition was finalized, they worked very hard to get all of the pieces in place to be a soft landing spot for you. And so if you're if you were previously running on Core OS and now you're looking for a new home, you definitely want to check out Flatcar. Um this means that uh, Flatcar Linux is the only way for current users of Core OS Container Linux to move forward with active maintenance and security updates, uh, but they will have to make that switch before September. So it is a drop-in replacement, understand that. This is not something that you have to migrate to or it's a drop-in replacement. You can uh you can you can simply pick up all of your containers that were running on CoreOS. You can you can install Flatcar uh and 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 drop those containers back in and they will continue to run and then Flatcar will continue to uh take the lead on doing updates and stuff. And I I browsed around a little bit on their site and have been watching uh, they're a very passionate group of people that are looking to really make a difference and really provide some value here to the Linux community. And I really think it's uh, the, there's a uh, there's a real pull for me to support them and to encourage you to support them as well. Just looking at their roadmap really tells me a little bit about where their head is in the game. They are looking to, uh, and this is already an alpha, but stabilize the ARM support for flat car container Linux, uh, wider platform support, C group V2 hybrid mode as default and increased test coverage and guarantee of stability. Uh, so on and so forth. One of the things that really spoke to me when this uh, announcement came out, they took some time at the bottom of their announcement to talk to first and foremost, you know, here are the dates that you need to be aware of. Here are the things that you need to know. Here's why we believe that we are the best option for you. If you were on uh, core OS, but then they went on to talk a little bit about their company and what makes Kingvoke the, the company who is behind uh, Flatcar Container Linux a good choice. And the first thing that they bring to light is the fact that they are a Linux company first. At Kingvoke, much of our work nowadays revolves around Kubernetes, and we expect that to continue for the foreseeable future. But we see ourselves first and foremost as a Linux company. For us, the operating system is not a black box. We believe the only way to understand a system is to understand all parts of it, including down to the base operating system. We've built our team with this mindset. The Kinvoke team is comprised of people who feel that they're comfortable doing Linux, uh, doing Linux kernel or systemd development as they do when deploying a properly configured Kubernetes cluster. In fact, these are often the skills found in a single individual. That, again, a lot of power behind that and the fact that they take the time to outline uh, th their their belief system. They actually go on to talk about how how open source has affected them and modeled and shaped their company, all of which I'm very appreciative of. But it makes me feel a lot better to come down and sit to you and talk to you today and say, 
if you're looking for a new place because this previous thing that you were relying on in the Linux community is gone, well, don't worry because somebody has stepped up to fill the plate and those people have the right attitude towards open source, have the right attitude towards Linux, have the right attitude towards forward momentum. They're not just maintaining the project. Understand that, right? There was a Red Hat has done a pretty decent job, uh, as they usually do, of providing uh, continued support and maintenance and all of those kinds of things up until the very end when they decide to discontinue something. Um, these guys are not just interested in maintaining support, continuing support. They're interested in expanding the project. They believe in Core OS and what was Core OS, which is now Flatcar Linux. Um, so if you haven't had a chance to check this out, if you haven't played with Core OS in the past, I'm also going to be taking Flatcar uh, Container Linux for a spin. I suggest you do the same. Um, we'll have more. We'll have this article as well as others linked in the show notes, so you can check those out. You can also go to uh, Kinvoke's site, and I, I would encourage you to read their blog. They do a pretty good job of keeping people up to date and publishing updates of, of where they're headed to next. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Brad calls from Baltimore. Hey, Brad, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, how you doing? Uh, hey, pretty good. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I wanted to run a, a small machine for uh, basic Unix services with a hypervisor. And um, I'm actually probably going to use Beehive. But uh, my question was, do you think a four-core Celeron would be sufficient for just some very basic stuff? For example, NTP, um, maybe a personal wiki. Yeah, I, here's the thing. The, the truth is modern computer hardware, particularly server hardware, is so ridiculously overpowered because it's doing... Lots and lots of stuff. In fact, this is really the reason why virtualization and containerization has taken off, right? We've reached a point now where one computer has so much power, so much RAM, so much storage in it, that trying to use it for any one purpose, unless it's a really heavy purpose, is just wasted power. Um, I I still reuse uh, Celerons and and you know old i3s. In fact, I just we put a we put a Pentium four into production last week. We had a, a company that had a a really old Think Center. And uh, it was basically junk, basically good for nothing. But we had a, a very old piece of software that we had to pull some information off of. And the only way that software can talk is with FTP. So we threw a current version of CentOS on it and uh, and set up a, a simple FTP server. It works great for stuff like that. Um, yeah, basic, uh, you know, like if you wanted to run a wiki on it or, or some basic network services, absolutely you could use a cell around for that. Oh, cool. It's it's crazy how, how uh, low power some of these machines are. It's, it says it idles under 30 watts. Yeah, I okay, so I, I tell you what, I as far as being able to run the software and get your work done, you're just not going to have a problem. I really believe unless you're, I, you know, if you told me you were doing some sort of media transcoding, I might tell you to buy a, you know, a slightly beefier box. If you told me you're going to run FreeNAS, I yeah. might tell you to buy a beefier box. But you're you're going to run some basic services, run a wiki, you won't have a problem. Here's the thing though. The one of the one of the key innovations that occur in both server and desktop hardware is power efficiency. And one of the reasons that companies are hot to trot to upgrade their servers every two to five years is because of the increase in power efficiency. So from that standpoint, 
Um, you know, depending on where you live, too. I mean, so you're you're calling from Baltimore, so you're probably in a slightly different scenario. But uh, some of the folks out in California will upgrade their servers because they'll make back in a year uh, what they would pay for power. Uh, and yeah. and so, and, you know, just to pay the upgrade costs. So I wouldn't per, I wouldn't use the Celeron in terms of power efficiency. But as far as getting the job done, okay. yeah, you won't have a problem. All right. Thanks a lot, Noah. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Jeeves calls from London. Hey, Jeeves, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thanks for calling in. Um, kind of kind of, kind of, of coming off the note you were just talking about with the previous caller, um, I actually have an old uh, Pentium 3 that I was running a wiki and a sort of static website. Nice. So I got it right and, then. Uh, yeah, power consumption's an issue. <laughs> it, it, it's quite costly sometimes. Oh, for power? Yeah, yeah, I've got an old Pentium 3 that's running running a website. So, yeah, sometimes I can get a bit costly. I was just messing around with it earlier this year. But it um, works. But my question was actually about um, kind of coming off of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it, work, it works just fine. It's a, bit, it's a bit slow at times, but it works just fine. Sure. Um my question was actually about setting up, um, sort of coming off of that, a uh, home lab at home. I'm looking to get into system administration and um, just thinking about maybe getting a dual CPU, like a rack server for the home. Yeah. Services on there. Um, just wondering if you had any recommendations for the Xeons. I've been looking at like the V1, V2, V3. Um, just trying to keep costs low because I'm just getting into it, wondering if you had any recommendations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the servers that we deploy, not just in home environments, but we actually will put them in businesses, um, is the Dell PowerEdge R710s and Dell PowerEdge R720s. And here's why. Um, the 710s, well, you can pick them up on eBay for as low as 100 bucks. Um, spec'd out if you get, you know, the, a 12-core with, you know, like 6 terabytes of storage and... and um, and uh, let's see here. There's one here with 64 gigs of RAM. Then it can get up into about 300 bucks. But still, what you're getting for the price is fantastic. And these things are more than capable of running a production environment today. Um, we have small offices that are running 10, 12 users that have virtual machines that are virtualized on a Dell R710 or Dell R720. And, um, and they're running Windows 10 just fine. Uh, in a virtual environment, and so obviously, awesome. I was actually going to ask about that as well. Actually, well, so there's about maybe doing the GPU password and setting up some workstations, like maybe only two or three. But yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and so, and so these things. So, a couple of things that make this an ideal environment for a home server, Jeeves. The first thing is that it they offer redundant power supplies, and so this is something that you're not going to get inside of any sort of desktop uh, form factor, right? And so um, the redundant power supplies allow if one were to fail, your server doesn't go offline, it just kicks an error out, and you can go replace it at your leisure without even having to restart. You just pull it out the back, put a new one in. Um, so that's really cool. The other thing that I really like about the 710, 720 uh, form factor is they handle all of the drives very, very well. So there is a drive, there is a drive bay on the front that typically will take anywhere from 8 to 16 drives. And you can place the drives in there. They go to a backplane, and then there is a perk, a, a Dell perk card that is essentially a hardware RAID controller that uh, that you can set up the drives however you want. Now there is firmware available on the internet that if you say to yourself, "Self, I don't want to use the hardware RAID. I want to, you know, for example, if you're setting up FreeNAS, you wouldn't want to use hardware RAID." And uh, by the way, pro tip, if you did have to use hardware RAID in FreeNAS, what you want to do is create all of the drives as an individual RAID zero 
uh, configuration. And there'll be a little bit of extra header information on the drive, but for the most part, it won't affect anything and you'll be able to run FreeNAS just fine without having to worry about data corruption. Uh, FreeNAS expects direct access to the drives. And so if you try to pass it through a traditional RAID controller and group all the drives together, um, it, it deals with the way that it flushes the cache and stuff like that can cause data loss. And so you would never want to do that. But again, going back to why I like the 710, 720, there is firmware on the internet that you can flash onto those perk cards that allow it to be, uh, that allow the, the, the RAID card to turn into a JBOD controller. And so what that does is it presents all of the disks to the operating system as individual disks. Now, if you're installing CentOS or Ubuntu, I would just leave the perk card as is. I would configure the RAID however it is you want to configure the RAID and then install your operating system on top of that. The, the, the perk is an excellent hardware RAID controller. It will do a very fantastic job and they're inexpensive enough that if anything ever happened to it and you didn't, you need to get your data back, you can always purchase another one for a couple of bucks, throw it in the server and it'll boot right up. Um, so if if you're looking for the, the 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 best bang for your buck, the best value for your dollar, I don't know if there is a better option than the Dell R710 or Dell R720. Gotcha. Uh, and just coming off of that, because I was thinking of maybe setting up Zen server and running a couple of Windows 10 VMs. Yeah. Would you be able to do a GPU password on that? Does that absolutely maybe two or three graphics cards? Yeah, so the the only issue you're going to have with a graphics card is the 710 and 720 are both 2U units, and so there is a height limitation on the chassis itself. Mm -hmm. However, they do have riser yeah. cards, and so you can, I mean, because there's PCI, so you could stick, you could you could put a PCI card in there, and there's a riser card that'll flip it, and so you, it it is possible to do. I don't know how many of it, how many, yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know how many of them would fit in there, but it's certainly possible. Right, okay. Okay, cool. And um, just another question mm -hmm. about, you were talking about um, uh, DNS over HTTPS earlier. Yes. I was, I was just wondering, does, isn't that kind of, shouldn't people basically just be using like a proxy, like a VPN anyway? Because like theoretically, like the ISP, whoever's watching you could just do like a reverse DNS lookup on the IP address. Right. In your packets and figure out who you're talking to. Yeah, there's, that's a great question. That's a great point. Um, so a couple things there. First is, the problem with using a proxy or a VPN service is that less technical users aren't going to, by default, know how to do that. Even if they know I should use a proxy, I should use a VPN provider. If you go and Google proxy, you're going the 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 a lot of the proxies that are recommended on the internet are often recommended because of cost. The problem with recommending something based on cost is you usually get what you pay for. And so there is, there's actually yeah. been, there's, we, I didn't actually cover it on the show. I, I prepped the topic and then we ran out of time or something like that because we never actually got to it. But there was a story a few months ago where a guy actually set up a proxy specific, he advertised it for free on the internet specifically so that he could capture the traffic of the people that were doing it and, and show all of the illegal activities that they were doing. And so, and, and he said, here's why you should not use a free proxy because this is what people like me can do with that. Mm. Um, same is true with the VPN. You know, if you go and Google VPN service, there's a number of different choices. And then if you don't understand what a VPN is or how it works, you wind up in a scenario in which you go into a coffee shop that has some very restrictive firewall rules. You go and fire up your VPN uh, trying to connect and then the VPN doesn't connect because it can't reach out on that port or traffic can't come back through in that port, whatever the situation is. And now that user is, is stuck in the water and maybe they can't even get to the internet and they don't understand why, because, you know, you know, maybe the TCP packets connected mm -hmm. uh, because those parts aren't blocked and, and the UDP where it's forwarding all the traffic through that that's failing or other way around. Um, but the, 
but and, I, and I've had that happen to me, and, I, and I'll look at it and go, huh, that's weird. I can't get to the internet. Oh, let's try and kill the VPN, see if that works. Oh, yeah, that works. Huh, they must have something weird. I can figure that out because I understand what a VPN is doing for me. If you don't understand that, that's problematic. The nice thing about Mozilla's approach is this. Anybody, everybody that's a Firefox user, when this rolls out, is going to roll out by default, and all of their DNS inquiries are going to be protected, whether or not they even understand what that means. Uh, so it's privacy by default. Yeah. It's, and so, and then if they have a problem and they, you know, and there there is some weird circumstance where they don't want it, you can of course go in there and turn it off. Um, but the default is to have it on. So I, I guess TLDR: if VPNs and and proxies were as easy to deploy as installing the latest version of Firefox, I would agree. <laughs> Um, you mentioned uh, free VPNs. I was just wondering if you've heard of um, Windscribe. It's I haven't. Tell me about Windscribe. Over in, UK, uh, over in the UK. It's windscribe.com, Windscribe, S-C-R-I-B-E. It's a free VPN. I mean, you can pay for it. Like, it's an optional thing if you pay for it, but they allow you to sign up with no identifying information, and you get, like, 10 gig of usage per account per month. Wow. That's that's great. Yeah. That's really cool. I don't know whether it. Whether, yeah, I don't know whether it's sort of given their business model whether there's a chance of it basically going defunct anytime soon or whatever. But I've been using it for about um, sort of three six months now, and I know a couple of other people who've heard about it and been using it. That's fantastic. Well, I really appreciate the information. Sign up with with a username and a password, and that's it. That's great. That's fantastic. That's what all VPNs should do. Uh, the only free VPN, and I'm going to add that to my list here, Windscribe. The, the, the only other one that I'm familiar with that I would actually trust is, uh, of course, ProtonVPN, which they start, uh, they have a free tier, which gets you three countries, one device. Yeah, I was using that before. Yeah. The Windscribe, oh, oh, that's great. So, so tell me this. How do the two compare? Which one, wh what makes you like Windscribe over uh, ProtonVPN? Uh, just the anonymity, really. Just okay. Confidence. I mean, obviously, if you're using a provider like Nord or something, you've got to pay with your card or PayPal or what have you, and you've got to give them your um, name and address or whatever it is. I don't think. Uh, I mean, I don't really mind the the data restriction. I, I don't think I mean, that Proton VPN requires. I, I don't think v Proton VPN requires any sort of uh, identifiable information. Oh, I think thing, they just I think it's just a username, was, password, um, and email address. Windscribe doesn't. To my knowledge, Windscribe doesn't um, filter out any traffic on any ports or any protocols or whatever. So whereas Proton, for example, blocks BitTorrent. Ah. Okay, well, there you go. There's a good reason to use Windscribe. And that's, is, that, is that something that's only available across the pond, or is that available anywhere? No, I think it's available anywhere. I think it's just kind of uh, become a bit more well-known here. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, I will add that to the list. I'm going to take it for a test drive. I appreciate the recommendation. Awesome. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thanks for calling in. Again, open phones this hour, 855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624. Of course, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. That's how you can add your voice, become part of the program. Cockpit 213 has been released. Now, I have had mixed feelings about Cockpit because I was in, uh, still am in love with Vert Manager. I think it's one of the best programs out there. And when it was announced that Vert Manager is to be discontinued down the road and, uh, and, and to be deprecated, I got a little nervous and I th said, well, what is the replacement for Vert Manager? And the answer I got was Cockpit. Now, a little backstory. If you have been playing with LibVert for any length of time, you know, back when it first started, everything was done with verse commands. And so when, 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 when we started using Vert Manager, 
Um, and I remember, I think it was send, I think it was actually my Red Hat 6 class was the first time I ever saw it. Sat down in the class and the way that they did the lab was with Vert Manager. And I thought, well, that's a much better. That's, this is really cool. And so I was playing with the, the, the graphic utility and, and that has since become just a really fantastic way to manage your libvert environment. In fact, I was just talking with Michael Jennings from Vox Telesis the other day and he's trying out vert manager in a couple different virtual environments because the great thing about libvert is because it is shared, it is the shared, uh, hypervisor and the share, they have, you know, QCOW2 is the shared File, file storage container, hard drive container system. All of those technologies are shared between things like RHV, Overt, uh, you know, plain old Libvirt. And so you ca- it, it makes it very modular to move your virtual machines around and manage that virtual infrastructure. And when I, the first time I tried Cockpit and found how many features were missing from, co- like I couldn't even set up the network inside a Cockpit, I was like, oh man, we are in trouble. And uh, couldn't have been more wrong about that because it has come such a long way uh, to the point that if you'll recall a few weeks ago, it actually saved my tuckus because I was locked out of the, I was locked out, did not have access to my standard laptop. All I had access to was my Pinebook Pro and was able to continue setting up virtual machines because cockpit. Uh, At Red Hat Summit last year, they made a point to talk over and over and over again about how admins would be able to administrate their servers from their smartphone. And while that seems like something that's a a bit jarring to me at first, the reality is the vast majority of us expect to be able to do a lot of our work from our smartphones. And so up until now, when it comes to managing servers, there's all sorts of third-party solutions that are in place. I have a, uh, I don't remember what the name of it is, but I have an SSH app that stores all of my all of my uh, credentials on there, and then uh, I can just tap on the server I want. It logs me in, and then I can reboot it that way, which has been a pretty decent way to 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 do it. If I'm being honest, I've paired that with the BlackBerry uh, Key Two, uh, which gives me a physical keyboard, and administrating servers from my phone is actually not that bad. But being able to administrate the entire server and not relying on a third party app is even better. And and again, Cockpit has continued to make improvements. Everything is going the way of the web UI. Now, I've said that for years as it relates to customer software and software that we support for clients. But the truth is, even for us as administrators, everything is going the way of the web UI. Look at the way that you deal with FreeNAS. Look at the way that you deal with Proxmox. Look at the way that you deal with uh, um, Plex. Most servers, and NextCloud, same thing. Most servers, the interface now for configuring them is a web UI, and that's just be kind of become the default standard. And so if we were to reinvent server administration from the ground up, we would probably do it with the web UI. Now, interestingly enough, to the best of my knowledge, there has never really been a standard UI for complete server management. There's, of course, uh, uh, is it Net... Is it web admin? There, there, there. Of course, been plugins and third-party software that you can install. Many of them have gained some popularity, but there, up until now, we've not had a UI utility um, that was when you install a server. This is the way that you administrate it, and it works on all of these servers, and you can manage it this cluster and this, that, and the other. It has primarily been a CLI-based environment. Of course, that's not going anywhere. And anybody that's been administrating servers for a long time prefers the CLI because we can usually get stuff done faster. But this is much more welcoming to new users. Sat a new administrator that had started with our company down in front of cockpit, showed it to him and said, here, what do you think? And he was just blown away. Hey, this is amazing. This is incredible. 
Um, and so there have been some major improvements with Cockpit 213. First, support for transient virtual uh, machines. And so not all operations make sense for transient virtual machines, and Cockpit is now aware of that. Cockpit also supports selecting UEFI as the firmware for a new virtual machine. That needs to be done before the first boot. And my favorite feature, when creating a virtual machine with a supported OS, Cockpit can now install and configure that OS automatically without requiring user interaction. So what this means is you can develop a template, a profile, if you will, of how you want your CentOS server to be deployed or your Ubuntu server to be deployed. And then when you spin up a Ubuntu uh, 18.04 server, you spin up a CentOS 8 server, you have the opportunity now to click on that little template and say, here's what I want the root password to be. Here's how much RAM I want assigned. Here's how big I want the hard disk to be. Here's how I want the partitioning layout. All this stuff I can I can set up ahead of time. And now it's just a one-click template deploy. This is amazing. This is incredible. This is taking this is taking a basic libvirt install to the next level. This is stuff that has existed in other virtual environments for a long time to include many open source alternatives that that we've been using. So that it's not it's not something that is unheard of or or crazy new technology, but the fact that this is now coming to us with a standard libvirt setup, which, by the way, is about five commands to set up. If you've ever thought about setting up a virtual environment, and this is one of the reasons I kind of rail against Proxmox just a little bit, um, I can't log into my Proxmox environment without it popping up telling me that I need some stupid subscription service from their from their thing that I have to buy. Uh, I could just set up libvirt, and I can install Cockpit on top of that, and I have essentially all of the same features um, from... With a, with a much more simplified installation, configuration, and administration standpoint. Like, there's just less knobs that you have to worry about. And if I was to move from uh, away from libvert, just plain old libvert on a box, I'd probably go with overt. Because overt is very v-centery, if you will. Uh, it has all those bells and whistles. It has all those switches. And cockpit just makes this that much easier. And so... Getting into managing a virtual machine, if you've not done it before and you want to try, I invite you to check out our wiki, wiki.linuxdelta.com, and there is a guide there on not only setting up a hypervisor with, I believe it's based on CentOS 7 and Libvirt, but it also allows you to set up Cockpit and administrate the machine from 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 Cockpit, from a web UI. So if you haven't played with Cockpit, you need to do that. If you haven't set up virtual machines, you need to do that, uh, and all of this is just getting better with time. Again, it's open phones this hour at 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. Tony calls from Toronto. Hey, Tony, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. Um, so actually, uh, coincidentally, my question is sort of related to virtual machines. Okay. Um, I, I'm looking to to get uh, a high availability solution uh, with virtual machines. I don't want to really go to VMware. Uh, I'd like it to be ideally... Uh, Linux-based. Um, the server that I'm running is a Linux server, uh, and it's running a phone system. And um, I'm, I'm, anyways, I'm hoping that uh, I can keep it Linux. So I, I think right now I've been playing around with with uh, uh, XCP and G, but it's. I feel like every time I, I make a change, sometimes I gotta constantly go to the command line to 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 fix it, and it's kind of annoying. I'm not as polished as 
well, it could just be my inexperience, but what, what would you recommend? If you want the easiest solution, after I just got done beating them up a little bit, if you want the easiest, most straightforward solution, it is Proxmox, because you download the ISO, you run it on a flash drive, you plug it in, burn it to a flash drive, you plug it into the system, you install it, and it's if you've ever used FreeNAS or you've ever used uh, any, any one of those appliance-esque distros, uh, that's what Proxmox is going to get you. So that that's by far the easiest way to go. Uh, if you're willing to put in a little bit more work, and by little, I do mean a little, it's not much, um, you can go to an overt installation. Now, the nice thing about overt is this. If if you told me I work for a Fortune 500 company and I need high availability and uh, the company's writing the check for it, but I just need it to work and no compromises, and I also need somebody to blame if anything ever goes wrong, I would tell you to go with RHV, which is Red Hat's virtualization environment. And it is every bit as capable and probably in a lot of ways more capable than any other virtual environment out there to include uh, Citrix, Zen, I mean, the whole nine yards. If you can think, If you can think of a virtual environment, RHV does it better. Um, the free version of RHV, the community-supported version of RHV, is Overt. Uh, and we have, I believe there's an Overt guide on our wiki at wiki.linuxdelta.com, so you can check that out uh, if you want a guide on how to set up Overt. But um, that is going to give you all of the features you want, and it's going to keep you f- uh, almost completely independent of any one particular technology. You're going to be able to bounce around if you need to, because you can take those QCOW2 uh, VMs and move them wherever you need to if you want to try something else. Gotcha. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, that that sounds good to me then. Yeah, that, thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call. Open phones this hour at 855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624. Of course, the email live at asknoahshow.com. I bet you we have for- focused more on privacy on this show than probably any other any other Linux-based podcast out there. I mean, it's it's something I take true to heart. And what's interesting is the rest of America is catching on. Headline, most Americans worried about how companies and governments will use technology like facial recognition and encryption and how it will affect their data and security. So VPN provider ExpressVPN had conducted a survey that surveyed 1,200 adults and revealed that America's has deep concerns for online privacy. of people, to be specific, had deep concerns about online privacy, and 53% do not support encryption backdoors required by the U.S. government. If a law permitted it, 84% of respondents said they plan to exercise their right to have websites and online services remove their personal information when they ask. Uh, Americans have reached a breaking point where they're uncomfortable with companies collecting their personal data. And in the UK, they have started, they, they have passed legislation. And if you've been to any sites recently, you've seen the little pop-up where it has to now ask, can we collect this information? Do you, do you care? If I'm being honest with you, I somewhat, I don't know that we've really solved a problem. I think we've just taken one problem and turned it into a new one. And here's why. The cookie pop-up request really doesn't stop the collection of privacy or collection of data and and violation of privacy. What it does is it requires the user to agree before their privacy is violated. Now, the issue is if there was a little button and the button said yes or no, and you could choose yes or no, and then you'd go back to the site and you could continue on with the site, that would be fine. 
what you find on most sites as a privacy conscious person, I try to click no. And then I'm taken to some other site or it the box just kind of half goes away, but it's still kind of minimized at the top. And I'm not really sure if I've actually communicated that I don't want my data to be collected or if I've not been effective in communicating that or if there's another step I need to do or do I need to save my changes. It's just it's very unclear and it's different on every single site. And so and what I have seen in the field as I work with clients to do this is everybody just clicks yes. The vast majority of people click yes. And if they don't know what to do, they try clicking no, and then it doesn't work, and then they click yes. So I don't know that we've, I don't know that they've really solved the problem, but I'm glad they're taking a step in the right direction. Americans now are reaching that similar breaking point. They're waking up and saying, we need to take online privacy and security into our own hands. And they would like to see more proactive steps to safeguard their data. Now, there's been an interesting piece of legislation that has been introduced, and this piece of legislation seeks to create a body governing data privacy. Now, this is introduced by Kristen Gillibrand in, I believe it's New York, and she is pushing for a a bill that would form a regulatory body to to start to create a standards and system that can be used to enforce privacy for users. And of course, the problem that we have right now, as I see it, is this. We have a Fourth Amendment right in the United States of America, and that does guarantee a certain amount of privacy. But as I pointed out numerous times on the show and many others, when you're arrested at an airport and they take your camera and look through your pictures. 20 years ago, they'd get the last 24 pictures that you took on your vacation. And there's nothing wrong with that. They got a warrant. They should be able to do that. The problem today as it exists is that when you take my phone and go through the pictures of my vacation, you don't just get the pictures of my vacation. You get every photo I've ever taken in my entire life. And that's only true from about age 20 or so on. Because of when I started using, you know, the my Android-based phone that syncs Google Photos. But for my kids, that's literally their entire life. From birth, every single photo they have taken, even the goofy, silly ones uh, on their tablet as they're, as they're standing up. This is a level of intrusive privacy that that we just have never dealt with or ever thought to dealt with to deal with. And so the fact that there are people out there that are trying to take a stand and trying to get some legislation passed to address this, I think, is very important. What I took away from this article, what I took away from these survey results is this. If given a choice, people would choose privacy. The problem problem is threefold. First of all, people are lazy. Second of all, people don't understand the threat. And third of all, people don't understand what to do about the threat, even if they understood it. And so my job, as I see it, as a host of the Ask Noah show is to come on here and try to pre- try to present some simple and easy ways that you can go about reclaiming your own privacy and protecting your own data. And that starts with things like using Mozilla Firefox, because Mozilla as a group, again, has been committed to user privacy and rolling out things like DNS over HTTPS further exemplifies why even if you didn't understand the kind of technical changes that were occurring, hopefully after this episode you now do, Mozilla is going to continue to take steps in a forward direction to make sure that your data is protected. So we'll continue to keep uh, an eye on that legislation. I did reach out to Kristen Hillebrand's, uh, uh, can't pronounce her last name, did reach out to her office and asked if she would be interested in coming on the program to discuss this bill and what she hopes to accomplish with it and the likelihood that she thinks it will pass. Um, 
but we'll continue to keep eyes on it either way and keep you up to date. Again, the phone lines are open, 855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Of course, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. Bill writes in and says, I started listening to your podcast since you first started podcasting, and I respect your opinions. I'm aware of Gramps, but I'd never used it because I started in genealogy long before Gramps existed and probably Linux. I began using Linux in the mid-90s. I started using an MS Windows program complete with a database on CD or DVD because of the GEDCOM. I easily switched to the free Mormon LDS genealogy program, the PAF, also now on MS Windows. I'm not Mormon, but they had a strong roots in genealogy and a free program. I've been using and recommend that you might like to check out a free and open source web-based genealogy program called WebTrees. You can run it on a server. It be... It began life in 2010 and is a fork of PHP JetView, with which I migrated from and began in 2002. It uses MySQL as a database and it offers regular updates, updated this month, and warns of unsupported PHP MySQL versions that depend on it. You can import or export to GEDCOM data. The nice thing about a browser-based program is that anyone, regardless of platform, will have access to the data. Family members that don't use Linux can easily have access to it. And so if you choose the username and password, you can show others and you're choosing updatability. So, for example, your wife can edit her side of the tree if you want. Also, my local library allows access to Ancestry.com, which is very useful for research. You can learn a lot about the census records alone. My library uses Windows, so I will have instant access to my data while doing research there. This helps locating data in my tree. I can also have Ancestry open in a tab, web trees in another tab. Finally, you just can't underestimate the value of living older family members. You blink and they're gone. I'm much older than you and there are so many questions I wish I could ask the family that passed on long ago. Take care, Bill. I appreciate the email and I wanted to draw some attention to some of these uh, programs, specifically WebTrees, the one I'm going to check out. I do want to point out a couple of things that I have discovered in Gramps, uh, having lived in it for the last two weeks or so. Uh, first of all, uh, it does export and import from the GEDCOM standard, and so if you had data, you could easily go in or out of grams with that. Uh, second of all, they offer a similar kind of thing to WebTrees in that you can export the data as a web directory, and then it can be browsable by other people. Now, where WebTrees seems to have a major advantage is, to the best of my knowledge, Gramps cannot edit that data over a web interface. And so in order to make changes, like you said, you would be able to send that information out to a family member, say, hey, do you have anything to add here? Hey, do you have anything to add here? And that can be coordinated through Facebook, right? Whereas Gramps, I would essentially end up FedExing a laptop and saying, hey, could you add anything that you know? Um, so it's definitely something I'm going to check out more, more than anything else, though, what I really took away from this email and what I was really happy to read and what I would like to encourage anybody else that's interesting in exploring genealogy to think about. Uh, consider the fact that because there is a GED sta GEDCOM standard, even before the 1990s, when this guy started using and started entering in his family tree, we are still at that same standard in 2020. And so, 30, you know, 20 years later, uh, 30 years later, excuse me, he's still able to import and read all of his data. And that's something that everybody should consider when you're storing any sort of data for long-term archiving purposes. What format are you storing it in that is going to allow you to access that data later on in the future? And it's one of the reasons that most of my documentation at this fundamental level, I publish it in all sorts of different places, but a lot of the information that you're seeing getting pushed to wiki.linuxdelta.com 
is actually, it has a roots in a text file on my FreeNAS box because I know in 20 years, or at least I have a strong reason to suspect in 20 years, I'll still be able to read a text file. Who knows if OpenOffice will be around? Who knows if Doc will be around? Whatever it is, right? But text file, you can always trust. Try and get to the lowest common denominator. Hey, that's it for this episode of the Ask Noah Show, but there is a ton of stories we didn't get to, a ton of stuff that didn't make it into the show. Head over to podcast.oshow.com. Check it out. We'll see you back here next week at 6 p.m. Bye.